When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. And welcome, everyone. This is the Mind Sculptors podcast. I am your host, Callahan, and we've got a great show lined up for you all today. But before we get into it, just want to take a quick moment to thank everybody for joining us this week. If you like this episode or any of our other episodes, please make sure to leave a like down below, uh, subscribe and comment. If you want access to our Discord server, as well as some extra content, make sure to head on over to our Patreon, patreon.com slash TheMindSculptors, or check out the link in the description. Today, we are going to be talking about stacks, everybody's favorite archetype. And uh, joining me today is uh, my good friend, Cobble, as usual. Cobble, how are you doing? I'm doing well. Good to be here. Good, good. Uh, Also, making uh, his first appearance on our show is uh, one of the... uh, He's been a sculpty boy for a while. We just haven't had a chance to get him on. Uh, Is Charles. Charles, uh, uh, well, people would know you as the mono white guy. Yeah. They sometimes also know me as Michael Levine. (laughs) (laughs) Don't do that. Don't do that. It's confusing. Oh, no. (laughs) Uh, So, Charles, thank you for uh, joining us. Uh, Glad to have you finally get you on. And uh, the, the, the best episode to really have you premiere is talking about stacks. Yes. Uh, so glad to finally have you on. Thanks and for uh, me. Uh, spoilers, if you didn't hear, uh, we are having uh, Dr. Michael Levine is uh, joining us uh, today as well. How are you doing today? Good. How are you doing? How's everyone doing? You know what? <laughs> so I, I got to be honest with you. Um, today, it was 27 degrees outside, finally. And um, it felt like summer to me. <laughs> I walked outside and I was like, oh, I don't need a jacket. It's only 30. Like <laughs> it's it, it was uh, about negative 27 at one point here in Lincoln this week. So it's it's been rough, but we have we have made it through. Um, negative 27 so, is quite bad. I, I usually think in Celsius and that's. Negative twenty seven in Fahrenheit yeah. is just so so bad. <laughs> it's it's unbelievably cold and my like I was surprised my car started. Uh, it was it was unbelievable. Yeah, ours um, ours didn't. Our, our our tires had gone flat on the one side and the oh flat, no the flat tires froze to the ground. So we had to salt the tires to get them so that we could inflate them and then be able to move the van. Oh my gosh, that's awful. Guys, I just stayed home. <laughs> well, uh, for uh, I, I know we got some friends and stuff that are down in Texas. So to everybody who is in Texas, you know, our thoughts and prayers go out to you guys. Uh, hope everybody is staying safe and uh, most importantly, staying warm. Uh, so we're all thinking about you guys. Um, today we are talking about stacks. And uh, this is something all four of us are uh, pretty well versed in, I would say. Passionate. Um, and What'd you say? We're passionate about stacks. Passionate about Very um, passionate yeah. about stacks. Yeah, so much we like even associate our identities to it, you know? A little bit. 
Um, so Charles, when we're talking about stacks, like what are we, what are we really talking about as what this means as an archetype? Um, well, um, stacks as an archetype, uh, it kind of differentiates a bit from death and taxes though. I'm just going to refer to, uh, Kalpa, you had a tweet earlier today that, uh, I'll just quote you on uh stacks archetypes play effects that break down the avenues exploited by unfair strategies they force other decks to play fair magic and uh you hear this word a lot fair magic um from stacks players what does it mean uh well, it's it's kind of like uh a loaded term but um <laughs> it's <laughs> it, it really is, is like a style of control um it's if you're if you're a control player who's played like 60 card 1v1 magic and you like the idea of playing these really tight games against your opponents uh messing around with their resources and then coming out with like a really strong finisher at the end um that is sort of the idea of stacks as well you're playing cards that uh manage the resources on the battlefield manage aspects like card advantage manage other aspects like tempo as well and uh outplay your opponents um not necessarily with overwhelming well attempt to yes <laughs> attempt to outplay <laughs> your opponents i mean this is this is edh we're talking about it's four player multiplayer magic it's a lot different here um but yeah, that's uh, that's sort of stacks from a very high level uh, philosophical perspective. How you do it actually kind of really varies and depends. And uh, hopefully we'll go over uh, all those different kinds of ideas across a widespread uh, kit of different stacks cards that we'll use as examples. Right. Right. Now, when we're we're talking about stacks, you know, there's there's kind of different categories right of, of what it is because you know not all stacks are the same um so you know uh, oh, michael yeah. when we're when we're talking stacks michael um you know really what are kind of those core pieces that we think of when we're talking like what are these different types of stacks effects yeah i mean for me when i think of if something's a stacks effect or not i usually think does this stop people from winning the game or does it not? And if it's a card that's <laughs> going to stop people from winning the game, there's a good chance it's a stacks effect. Uh, there is kind of like a caveat on that because pillow fort effects, which are not exactly stacks effects, also do stop people from winning the game. Uh, but these are ones that I think, uh, and it gets back to Cobblepot's quote about making people play fair magic. You're stopping them from winning the game by stopping them doing their broken thing that they want to do whether that is right. to play this incredible fast mana and just ramp out powerful spells. So you're playing things like Null Rod or you're, you know, they want to reanimate something crazy early on. So you're playing Graveyard Hate. What the real goal is, is just to stop them from doing the broken thing. And I think any card that doesn't stop the broken things, for me, it almost feels like it's not a stacks card. It, you know, it might be an annoying card, <laughs> um, but, it, right. but for me, it's almost not a stacks card. Yeah, uh, I think like a good example of this uh, to piggyback off of you, Michael, is like Painter Servant. Like that card doesn't really do anything, but then when you pair it up with something like Iona, which you know is no longer playable, but for a while Iona, right? Iona is really the the, the stacks piece. Painter Servant just adds that extra quote unquote annoying effect. Right, it's right? an amplifier for it. I would say. Yeah. Um, uh, you you had uh, Charles 
you had a couple of categories uh, in, in, some, in some articles that you've written uh, before. You, you kind of broke down some, some broad categories for how it is that you classified different types of stacks effects. Did you want to talk about that? Yeah, yeah, I'll talk about it. Uh, I know that you and Pongo actually recently did a uh, podcast on deck building efficiency. It's a great uh, podcast. You guys should give a listen to it. Uh, I've written uh, my own articles about uh, values and paradigms about how we understand card advantage and card velocity. Uh, I have another article coming out later in the future talking more about stacks uh, and focusing on this term that Pongo and Cobblepot uh, used. And actually, Michael used in his uh, interview with Braden from C. CDH cast called Action Economy. Uh, but in this other article that I have coming out soon, I uh, established four different kinds of stacks because not all stacks are created equal. And it's really important that I think that we kind of distinguish this. Now, you can have your own categories. I'm not going to debate about that or disagree with that. Uh, but it's just more like I think that this is sort of helpful. So the first one that I mentioned is um, commanding stacks. These are like your stacks pieces that people have in some ways built decks around. Uh, Lavinia being, you know, a really good example. <laughs> but we have we. I wasn't the one who who said it this week. It wasn't <laughs> me. <laughs> yeah, I, 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 you know, the, tipping my hat to you, Callahan. Right. Uh, but you know, there's a there's recently a rule of law discord that uh, Michael and I are in, uh, and uh, rule of law has sort of become like the card similar to ad nauseum, almost like it's bipolar counterpart on the opposite end of the spectrum of instead of being fast and winning it's very controlling and decks have been built around this idea of rule of law winter orb is another one i mean like i think that that's been held up uh because of urza and static orb like those two specific orb pieces have really defined in a way uh a deck that when you play that card the whole table is, revolves around that card existing on the table now um and something that is important about that is that that uh, for this category, it would be effects that are going to have a detrimental or a controlling effect on opponents, regardless of what their archetype is. And exactly. What their their, their yes. plan of attacking the table would be. Yes. So it, the funny yep. thing about and, about Winter Orb or Static Orb is that you know when I think about stacks effects, I almost never include those two cards in my mental model, uh, specifically because. They don't really force people to play fair magic, right? There's not – in the in the ED, it, at least in the CDH meta, not many people are cheating on lands that often. Right. So it, this is just like a general effect that kind of slows things down and everyone gets a little bit annoyed. It doesn't necessarily stop people from doing the broken things. So when I start yeah, right. building stack stacks, I, I pretty much never have those in the list to be cut from the beginning – uh, because they they just feel a little bit they don't force fair magic they they just force mm. slow magic. <laughs> well, yeah. there was I, there was a point in time there was a point in time that those were very effective in doing that. So you you look at your you know tap down effects like um, you know kismet uh, frozen ether blind sure. obedience and uh, you know combine those with with uh, blood moon effects or you back know, to basics. Exactly. Yeah. Um, th those those used to be very effective until the printing of Dockside Extortionist. Mm -hmm. And Dockside Extortionist is kind of like the one card that, on the one hand, it it in and of itself makes it such that you really don't care about what your lands 
are doing because gen- yep. you can you can almost always in a multiplayer game and especially in a multiplayer game where people are developing with a lot of you know uh, fast mana that are that's normally in the form of rocks or you know in the form of carpet and you know that kind of thing you know that you're going to be very mana positive after casting mm-hmm. it um yeah, it's that that in and of itself is, is is a huge factor, but because it has proliferated through the metagame so abundantly, you know that any deck I mean really, there's there's not gonna be a deck that's that's got red and its color identity that's not running Dockside Extortionist. It's just that good. So And combine that with trying to attack that. Right? Combine that with mana dorks. So even if they're not in red, if they're in green, they're on a ton of one mana dorks that do not get affected by winter orb right so mm-hmm. well it, and 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 it's it's very yeah. in, important to point out too with the dockside conversation just for a moment before we get too sucked into this but this is something <laughs> that you know when we're discussing stacks effects right there's a lot of they can vary in how they present themselves and all these things but by and large they show up on artifacts and enchantments and those are both triggers to Dockside. Yep. So they're, if you don't have the right ones, it, they can be problematic in the wrong situation. Um, they can backfire. So, yeah, and that's going to lead into some of the discussion we're going to be talking about yeah. further down the line. We are getting a little but, too ahead of ourselves, I think. Yeah, but but <laughs> right, so right. when we when we when we talk, so what are the, we the, the when we really get into it then, and we're talking about the stacks pieces, right? Yeah. Um, what are some of the stacks pieces that we're really going to see on, you know, more of in a more, more often, I suppose is where, where I'm trying yeah, to go. So, so I want to like preface this by also saying that like commanding stacks and w- the next term that I'm going to use is called preemptive stacks. These are more, uh, descriptive terms rather than prescriptive. It's not like, uh, winter orb is always going to be a commanding stacks piece, but as Cobblepot mentioned, it used to have this kind of dominance. And this also carries back to like the previous conversation that we were talking about with Painter Servant. Like Static Orb doesn't do much uh, because you have you know players like Adnos players who will just throw down a Dockside Extortionist, generate lots of treasure tokens, throw down the really cheap mana rocks like you know a mana crit or a mana vault, and start. Uh, chaining off spells to winning the game. You have underworld breach lines where you just, you know, generate infinite mana off of a lion's eye diamond, etc., etc. Uh, and it's, but it's like other effects, like for example, uh, static or plus bind obedience amplifies it so that those treasure tokens come into play tapped and they only untap two at a time, right? And things like that. But uh, once again, those are amplifying effects. What the next term that I want to get at is called preemptive stacks. These are meta-defining stack pieces, and uh, meta is the key word here. Dockside Extortionist has really changed the EDH meta since uh, its inception. I think 2019, and so correct. Yeah, and so uh, uh, enter the battlefield triggers when they printed Thassa's Oracle and uh, Theros. Uh, both uh, Dockside Extortionist and Thassa's Oracle, and then you have other cards like Emil making the scene. Uh, there was a huge emphasis on Enter the Battlefield triggered effects, right? And we saw like the printing of a card like Hushbringer come into play, and now we moved away from a Flash Hulk meta where people were running like cards like Containment Priest and Hollow Moonlight to playing 
cards that focus on enter the battlefield torpor orb like effects because right. that was the name of the game now it was how do we beat a dockside extortionist right and like i said there are other ways to deal with it like the static orb plus blind obedience type of thing you amplified a command you amplified a commanding stacks piece so that it can deal with a dockside extortionist right but there are other ways to engage with it. Other people recognize the fact that in order to loop Dockside Extortionist, because they'll either play a bounce spell with it or they'll loop it with Teamer Sabretooth or Emil, uh, well, not Emil, but with a Teamer Sabretooth or like an Underworld Breach line, Rule of Law effects became more prevalent. But uh, I think like Rule of Law has always just been a prevalent stacks piece, so I would say that it's more of a commanding stacks piece. These are relative oh, terms. I, I mean, it, it fell out of favor during the, the Flash era. Yeah. yeah. It, it was, because it, was it had less, a... Right. It, its power um, was less tangible under Flash because it actually helped Flash become more powerful. It was easier to protect Flash. Um, whereas now, uh, in, in the Flash era... The, the, the games were not very much about development. So what would happen was, and, and we were, we're getting a little ahead of ourselves here because we're going to talk about, you know, rule of law specifically in a little bit here. But, you know, just very quickly, um, the, the, the metagame during the Flash era was not about development. It was just kind of uh, sandbagging and identifying the, the right moment to win over the top of somebody else's win, basically. And, you know, everyone just trying to have as much interaction artillery as possible to win the counter war to get the flash that actually resolved Um, today's metagame is much different than that today's metagame is about developing quickly and then bootstrapping after a large uh, effect like an ad nauseum or just finding an opening and casting oracle plus consultation both of those are all, all three all three of those angles um, fast development in the in the, the the beginning game, bootstrapping after doing an ad nause or trying to cast Oracle plus consultation. All three of those are stymied by having a rule of law in effect, which yeah. is why it's so powerful now. Yeah, and so it's more of a commanding stacks piece now, but it was I would say I guess like a preemptive stacks piece before in the past because right. Uh, the, the decks that had stopped outside of Flash were like Elsha, uh, and uh, I think Kaikar was around at that time as well. Uh, right. and anything so, in Jeskai. Yeah, anything in Jeskai, really. And so, uh, and, and so it, it pivoted from being like a card that you played against a specific deck to a card that you could just play and feel confident that it would work against any deck. And that's sort of like the, the, the distinction between preemptive and commanding stacks. And so when you sit at a table and you see a card get played, you can sort of like test your analytical skills and identify well is this stacks piece a card that this person is running to hate out a specific archetype of things or is this a card that is like the centerpiece of their deck's commanding force as a stacks deck right, right. Uh, and so the next stacks archetype that or stacks definition that i want to get at is taxes and this is like the most iconically like where the name death and taxes comes from is like thalia uh trinosphere might count as one it really depends on how you look at it because trinosphere actually doesn't add additional taxes it just sets the value of a card to exactly three right Um, it functions more like a rule of law more than a tax effect yeah uh and and actually 
great, great point there. Um, Rule of Law restricts you to only one spell turn. Trinisphere sort of restricts you to one spell turn, but if you manage to get to like a larger critical mass of mana, you could chain multiple spells through Trinisphere such that it doesn't matter anymore. Like if you manage to, you know, get like a um, like a Zerda Grim Monolith activation, it just doesn't matter anymore that there's a Trinisphere, right? And this is sort of, right. and that is sort of the 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 main. Uh, essence of what a tax is. It's like a stacks in a way that its its latent purpose is to prevent your opponents from being able to do something. Like Athalia is really powerful after you resolve specifically it. on curve. Yeah, is is the the big point there. Yeah, like if you if you play Athalia early on, it's really hard for your opponents to establish that development with all those mana rocks that they have, or you know play the tutors that they want to play the non creature tutors specifically, uh, and. Uh, she she gives you that upswing in tempo. Uh, these are more of like a tempo paced card, uh, as what I said earlier about like a control deck wanting to control resources but also controlling tempo. Taxes tend to do that pretty well, uh, and usually you build your decks around these taxes so that you don't have to pay much of these taxes or you don't really care about the taxes to begin with. Um, the, the funny thing about taxes though is that they're also kind of in certain metas preemptive stacks, right? Like. When everyone was playing Scepter combo decks, attacks mm-hmm. can just stop you from making infinite mana because yes. you're you no longer net mana on uh, on the uh, dramatic reversal. And for example, most of the reason why I play tax effects in my Heliod deck is went to attack decks that want to loop spells and will not be able to loop them if the spell costs one or two more. Uh, mm-hmm. I find that it's more useful to really stop the broken thing than just to stop development. But then during gameplay, that's when I make the decision, am I playing this Thalia to stop development or am I going to hold it until I want to play it to stop someone from comboing? Uh, but really, when I when I put the deck together, I usually think how important it is to have this effect right now. Is there going to be a lot of Scepter? Is there going to be a lot of like divining top shenanigans? Are those decks popular? You know, th- that's usually what I'm thinking about. Yeah, uh, and actually, uh, that's, that's a great point. My favorite tax card, and I don't really see anyone else using it. I don't encourage people to use it, but this is like my personal favorite. It's Suppression Field. I always gush to Michael about it. Uh, <laughs> obviously, you wouldn't run it in Heliod Ballista because it's terrible in Heliod Ballista. Yes. It just shuts <laughs> he up. gushes about it to <laughs> us, too. Don't worry about it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, but like the fact that it hits Fetchlands, it hits like Planeswalkers, like uh, what's the new Planeswalker from Commander Legends? That's the new hotness right now. Tevishet. Yeah, yeah Tevish Zat. It hits Tevish Zat, right? It hits the Sensei's Divining Top. I just love it. Uh, <laughs> it's uh, it's also really great with uh, Icecrown Scepter the same way, too, because they now have to pay four to activate their Scepter. Uh, it also uh, offsets Zerda's own uh, ability to cheat with Grim Monolith. Um, and, you know, even with, like, a Reigns of Bright Hearth combo, you can't go infinite with Basalt Monolith either while there's a Suppression Field. It's like a tax that also just happens to stop specific infinite combos because of the exact numbers that it specifies. Uh, and so there's a lot that we can go into taxes here, and that might just be its own separate discussion entirely outside of this. But just wanted to establish the fact that if you see a number printed
printed on a card uh, and it says, you know, uh, this costs more or, you know, players can't play this unless they pay whatever, right? That's that, that tends to be a tax-like effect, but whether or not it commands the game, like, and that's something to also recognize that a card can be more than one thing by this definition. It's just sort of understanding sort of how that card works uh, is sort of what these definitions are used for. So that way you can get an idea of like, okay, well, if I just generate enough mana, because like the only problem with that, like, you know, basalt monolith loop was because that basalt monolith specifically tasked for three, uh, and Zerta reduces the cost by two, and then Suppression Field increases the cost by two to, to untap it. If you only produce one more extra mana, maybe, you know, or the activation cost of one mana less, then maybe you could get things to work, right? And that's, and so understanding the, how those numbers fit into the scheme of things is sort of how you want to play around against taxes, but also how you want to play with taxes as well, if you want to really, right. like, trap an opponent into a corner like that. Uh, and so now the fourth and final one are suggestive taxes slash staxes. And originally this was just suggestive taxes. Uh, and uh, suggestive is the key word here. So when, when I talked about taxes, we talked about required taxes that your opponents had to pay. There, there was no way around it. But what if, you know, you're opponent can choose to pay a tax or you know you get something off off of it instead so it's like ristic study and mystic remora and this is also really important because these cards are usually phrased in the way as triggered abilities right whereas uh taxes are static abilities ristic study and mystic remora and even smothering tide they're all triggered abilities they they go on the stack you actually don't have to pay for these things until the trigger resolves right and this leads into like very uh like sleight of hand type of plays that your opponents could use against you uh, when that happens uh, because uh, you don't know if your opponent's actually going to sink in the mana to those taxes until after that trigger resolves. Uh, but the other thing is that your opponent can has a choice. Um, and the reason why I now call these suggestive taxes slash taxes is because we now have something called Mangara, uh, the diplomat, who has you know this unique ability where it could be a rule of law effect if your opponent decides to play it like a rule of law effect, where they just don't want to give you the cards and so they don't play uh, the extra cards. Uh, and the reason why these also just kind of differentiate from your regular like rule of laws or your regular like Thalias, where there is like a surcharge on you know a spell or there is like a hard restriction on the number of spells that you can cast is because at any point in the game, if your opponent feels like that they can win the game, uh, they will just ignore these suggestions. They will ignore the suggestive tax. They will be like, draw as many cards as you like from your six study. I don't care. I have a whole breacher out or I have a Narset out. Or, or I already thing. cast silence. <laughs> yep. Yep. <laughs> Yeah, and so and, and that's and that's sort of like the downfall of these suggestive pieces. But the reason why people play these suggestive pieces is because usually the suggestion is very very strong. Uh, Mystic Remora has a very strong suggestion here of like you really don't want to cast that non-creature spell because if you do, I might just draw into my win con or I might just draw into sufficient counter magic to interact and defend my win con. You know. Right. Um, well, Mystic Remora is almost not a choice because it comes down turn <laughs> one and it asks you to pay four, right? So, yeah, that's what I'm saying. You really don't want to cast that non-creature yeah. spell, right? In, that's in that the, case, that's the right. suggestion. Absolutely. Yeah. You, the in that case, the suggestion isn't so much about whether you pay for it or not. It's whether or not you choose to stymie your own development 
and yep. and slow yourself. You're, you 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 choose to forego maybe casting all of the fast mana, uh, hoping that your opponent is going to let the fish go, and then maybe the next turn you you do that. But what ha- what that's done is. Uh, you know that that has suppressed the development of the table if everybody is respecting it, and it acts as a stacks effect in that capacity. I've it seen almost, plays, by the way, that I think are really hilarious. Is someone plays a Mystic Remora, and another person's like, "Yeah, I'm going to play all these Mana Rocks," and the guy's like, "Great, I guess I'm drawing all these cards." And the person's like, "I'm going to cast Silence now," and the person's like, "All right," yeah. and then it's like, "Here's a Windfall." <laughs> it, it there's there's an interesting. And it's 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 a little bit of a digression, but uh, the, yeah. the 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 question of you know do you do you pay for the Ristic or do you cast spells into Mystic Remora and that kind of thing? Um, the, those those both get very interesting with multiple players. So when when nobody has fed the fish, it is the correct play almost always for everyone to not feed the fish. And for everyone to respect right. it, but once a couple of people have stopped respecting that, so let's say that you're, you know, the first person plays a fish, and then the the player in second and third position both disrespect it and play a whole bunch of fast mana. Now you, as the fourth player, have to make a choice: do you respect that fish because it's quote unquote the right thing to do, or do you, if if you do that? If you do respect the fish in that context, you are allowing everybody else to basically ignore that stacks effect, and you are creating disparity between yourself and the rest of the table. So it actually becomes, at that point, correct for you to maintain development with everybody else to avoid falling behind. So it, it's a it's a weird. I'm not going to say prisoner's dilemma, but um, <laughs> it, it's a it's a variation of that context, and, and we'll come back to that in a minute. Yeah. I, I think the important part with the suggested taxes or stacks effects is that the good ones cost very little, and the bad ones cost a lot. Um, so, like, I don't play Mangara in Heliod uh, because it costs four, and I'm hoping by the time I have four mana, I have a rule of law effect in play. If it cost one, then I might play that effect for one. Um, same with Smothering Tide for me. I mean, unless you're doing broken things with Smothering Tide, like casting wheels with a Smothering Tide out, um, you're you're basically not getting that much mana. And when they want to draw a bunch of cards, they're going to draw a bunch of cards. And, mm-hmm. and, and four mana is a lot to not actually stop someone from winning. Whereas Ristic Study and Mystic Remora, one in three mana... The fact that they're they're cheap and they get you resources to interact with people makes them just just very very good. So right. Well, and and that's that's what's kind of interesting about you know these things, and we'll kind of get into this is because there's certain things like you know in Lavinia that we avoid um, for a variety of reasons, but uh, avoid just from the idea of like. Um, oh yeah, you know, Lavinia is a great example for this at distinguishing taxes from suggestive taxes, right? Right. Yeah, because well, and and so the big thing with Lavinia is you you can't play those tax effects um, that add that increase the CMC or increase the the casting cost of the card, but you can 
use the suggestive ones. Um, and like, like what Michael said is like the, the, how expensive they are matters a lot because, you know, Mangara, we're not going to play Mangara. That's four mana. And we really got to be doing more to develop because we don't have that much of a powerful, you know, like, like with Heliod, for example, I think too, you know, your Heliod isn't going to be a creature most of the time. Mm. And so, um, you know, in that scenario, you want to play something that's more impactful at four mana because, what's coming out of the command zone isn't generating as much value as like say a Kenrith. Yep. Um, but not to devolve too much to get into all of that. Uh, but so Kabul, when we, we, we look at all the, we've talked about the definitions, we've looked at all of them uh, and kind of where they all fall. Um, but like, what are the, the stacks effects when you see them? Um, what are kind of the cards and what do they do? Right. So, it, it, it's good to kind of have like an, an, an abstract way to categorize the pieces for thinking about them in, in, in terms of when you're when you're building your deck. Uh, so, you know, the, the preemptive stacks pieces that are kind of like metagaming and deciding, all right, which which kind of effects are, are going to hit the, you know, the, the, the most opponents or hit the specific opponents in the metagame that I know that I'm going to be up against in, in the most compromising way. Um, it's good to have those, those categories kind of understood in that context. Um, but talking about the, the, the pieces and the, the, uh, the, I would say more concrete categories is also important just to understand when you have a choice between multiple pieces or you've got a tutor in hand and you want to choose the thing that is going to, interact with the board state in a very specific way. You want to know what tools you have available before you make that choice. So uh, starting off is is going to be artifact hate. So this is going to include things like Null Rod, Stony Silence, Collector Oof, uh, those types of cards. And um, when you're looking at a stacks piece, you, you, you want to think about, uh, I like to think about three things. Um, is it going to impact development? Is it going to impact the uh, value generation or value engines of your opponents? And is it going to impact the win cons of your opponents? So when looking through those kind of like three uh, dimensions for, for each of these, it's, it's useful to give you an idea of its utility based on a board state. So null rod effects, they are absolutely going to hit the development of universally all lists in the CEDH metagame because all CEDH lists are going to run at least, you know, Mox Diamond and Chrome Mox, Mana, Crypt, and Soul Ring. And most of them are going to run many more rocks in addition to that as well. So you're going to hit development, so it's going to be very good early game. And it's also going to impact the win cons of decks that are, you know, relying on Dockside, Extortionist, uh, Icer Conceptor, Ballista, Reservoir, those kinds of things. So uh, that is, I, I think, kind of the, the, the first category that you want to look at. The funny thing about that category is that when I decided I wanted to play Heliod, the reason why I felt like Heliod was a good choice is because even though I can't play Null Rod or Stony Silence, I didn't think it mattered that much to not be able to play them. At the time, the broken things I was worried about were Oracle Consult, Flash Hulk, 
And I was like, yeah, Nolrod stops development, but like having to give it up is not a big deal if I get to play Heliod Ballista. Nowadays, it's a bigger, it's a bigger concession to say I'm going to play a deck that can't play Nolrod. Uh, right. And 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 that's it's a funny thing about how that evolves. You know, if more cards like Darkside come out, there will be a point where it's like a very bad idea to play Heliod because you can't play Nolrod. Uh, right. Well, in like, you know, Lavinia, for instance, I mean, we we run 19 artifacts because, you know, we're in blue white. So you have to have some way to ramp. Um, but we play Karn and uh, it just like it, in my opinion right now, like I feel like Karn is wor- a worthwhile include, but that's not even really what matters. Um, like these are the type of effects that, you know, even if you can't play collector oof even those asymmetric effects are still worth considering and playing um in a lot of situations and especially right now when we're in this dockside meta where everything is you know turbo dockside if you can land a karn they have to now deal with your karn yeah i mean um, even like blind obedience is way better now because dockside yeah. is such a good card <laughs> like just making the treasure enter tapped is such a big deal um so yeah it's it's crazy i actually just want them to print another blind obedience effect so i can play it in heliod like I've yeah been... blind obedience <laughs> is insane by the way uh every time i play that card now i just find it that this card is very deceptively powerful <laughs> when i play right. against my opponents um i mean like in the heliod deck that i run uh, i'm not playing heliod ballista but like the original heliod i run storage matrix uh with blind obedience uh like i said earlier and uh that proves to be very effective against dockside uh simply because they don't have access to their treasure tokens immediately because of blind obedience and next turn they have to choose to either untap their creatures their lands or their treasures uh right. and now another efficiency another really effective uh effect uh against you know uh these dockside decks right now cobble would be rule of law effects correct um i mean it it can be so de- depending on how it is that they're exploiting dockside if they're exploiting dockside in a, in a context in which they have to recast it then yes, rule of laws is going to hold it down. If they're if they're using mel or something to to blink the dock side, then um, mm-hmm. they're they're going to be able to, to to move right through it. But that that is this is true. This is another category of of, of stacks effects that we want to be looking at. And this is, I would say, the most important stacks category in the current metagame, uh, just because it is uh, so powerful in. Uh, fighting kind of like every aspect of most lists that exist. Um, so kind of going back to what, where, where we were, you know, categorizing or, or, or talking about what stacks is and saying, you know, forcing other lists to play fair magic. What, what is the way that lists are trying to be unfair? Most of the unfairness that we see, most of the degeneracy that we're, we're, we're seeing is, you know, Basically, people abusing Oracle and consultation, and people abusing mass draw, like like ad nauseum. Like that's that's the dominant thing that's in the metagame right now. Uh, but I mean, even things that are that are somewhat less dominant, like Underworld Breach, or you know, even Food Chain, which has you know fallen way back. Um, all of those are are all completely ineffectual if somebody has a rule of law effect in play. 
So mm-hmm. rule of law is is hitting the development, you know, going back to those dimensions again. Essentially, all lists are going to be slowed significantly by the, the presence of a rule of law. So the earlier that you can get a rule of law into play, if you can get a turn two or turn one rule of law, then um, you are making it such that the people who have designed their decks to be as, as, as high acceleration as possible are, are, are going to be at a significant disadvantage uh, against lists that are expecting a rule of law to be in play. And when you say all lists, like it, it really is all lists. When I first started playing Heliod, I remember doing an interview with CDHTV. We were going over my list after the DDM tournament, and he asked why I didn't play Rule of Law. And, and like simply, I, I, remember I just this. said, <laughs> it's really hard for me to play under Rule of Law, so I can't play it. Like it, it makes me have a hard time playing. And of course now, like Heliod is, is one of the major Rule of Law decks, and, and now I'm on every Rule of Law effect. It's hard to play with yeah. rule of law, and and often I have to think so many turns Michael. ahead. Uh, yeah, I remember having this conversation with you uh, about it because I was running rule of law back then, and uh, you said the exact same thing. I was like, and I said I can play a rule of law, but yeah, go on. Yeah, yeah, I I, mm. oh I still find it very hard to play with rule of law in play, and and a lot of my actually a lot of my gold fishing is like figuring out how to sequence things with the rule of law in play uh, because it just, it's very, very mm-hmm. tricky because the thing about rule of law that is great is that everyone starts telegraphing what they're going to do, right? Because they, they really need to plan what the, what spell to cast on what turn. Uh, but that means that you also telegraph what you're doing. And especially if you're relying on like tutors for a walking ballista that reveal walking ballista, it's, you know, just so obvious to what I'm doing as I'm doing it. So you have to really think about what order you want to do everything. Uh, and yeah. and it, it's very, very complicated because it really does hit all lists unless you're Cobblepot and you play a list where you never have to cast any spells if you don't want to. <laughs> I have a trick to play. You just activate abilities. Just activate yeah, abilities. I, I have a trick to playing Rule of Law, uh, and this will actually go into the whole activating abilities thing. Uh, and this deals with uh, Cobblepot, what you and Pongo were talking about with the action economy in your previous podcast, um, is uh, Rule... So, in a, in a normal game of Magic, like in a game of Magic as Richard Garfield intended, it's a 60-card game, 20 life total. You untap, upkeep, draw, play a land, play something, pass a turn, right? Uh, your What you can play is uh, defined as core essential to how much mana you have. That is literally the only limitation to what you can do in the game other than... The number of cards in your hand so your your upper bounds and lower bounds are dictated by cards in hand and mana resources available to cast those said cards rule of law is interesting because it puts an artificial cap to that it puts an additional um uh it puts an additional metric to those types of measurements and says that well now it's not just uh how much how many cards you have or how much mana you have, but it's also how many spells you can cast in a single turn, right? Uh, I would not be surprised if Wizards one day prints a rule of law that's like, you know, you can only play two spells a turn or something like that, though I think obviously that's worse than rule of law, but uh, it's not 
I, I don't think it's not within the realms of experimentation that Wizards is doing right now for Mono White. But the thing is, is that uh, this is something. Just wait, they're going to print an asymmetric rule of law effect. I'm, I'm, yeah. I can feel so it in my bones. I can't Callahan, wait. <laughs> Callahan and I. All right, all right. Okay, Callahan and I have been discussing about this, but we do believe the, that the Elish Norn, because Phyrexians by design are designed to have these asymmetrical effects and they also tend to be like slightly off colored like the original elish norn had actually like a black effect printed on her but that was like the anti-positive to like her effect that was the mono white one which was the plus two plus two right and so we do think that the new elish norn that's coming out sometime later will be a asymmetrical rule of law we just don't know how much she'll cost right? i can just feel it yeah <laughs> so um the, the, uh, sorry, the, go ahead, I think Michael. the thing you're going to get to, though, is that you know if you if you limit the number of spells, but you have a lot of abilities you can use, you can still use all your mana uh, efficiently, right? And and that's kind of the trick. Uh, mm-hmm. And and certain decks are very good at that. Like Rule of Law does nothing against uh, Yasan. Like it just doesn't do anything. I'm very happy that that deck's no longer in favor because it was <laughs> it was not an easy deck for me to play against. Um, yeah, it's the same with decks like Najula, where if you say they can only cast one spell, they just are going to use Najula's ability, uh, and now they're just going to load up on creatures because there's no limitation on the number of creatures, uh, yes. and they have a nice way to generate them. So, mm-hmm. rule of law effects are not kind of the be all end all of saying you know you can only take one action per turn as much as we'd like to pretend they are, but yes. in the current metagame, they're pretty close. Mm-hmm. They really and, are. And, and and this is once again going to back to uh, what I said about the action economy. The action economy, as as you put it, Michael, it your spells do not define your actions, but most players associate spells per actions. Like if you have to pick up your library to find a card, that is usually encapsulated within a single card. But if you have to, but if you can pick up your library, find a card, and put that card into play, well, that's just tooth and nail, right? You've pr- you basically done two actions through the performance of a single card. Uh, and these are kind of these are like the kinds of cards you want to watch out for when you're playing with the rule of law. Supposedly that you don't have a way to break parity with rule of law, right? You don't have like a Kenrith in play. Kenrith is an, is an example is an excellent commander with rule of law because he basically has five spells printed as abilities onto his body right uh he also is just really big and so he can you know negotiate uh the 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 battlefield with his with just combat that's the same thing with Najila. like players need to sometimes think about uh when there's a rule of law in play what are the actionable things that your that your opponents can do uh and think about this also in another sense right uh like if your opponent has a thrasios out and you know they put a lot of lands in play uh, and to play tapped, but you have a back to basics, right? Even though that player is, is doing a lot of Thrasios activations, as long as that back to basics is in play uh, and all the cards that they hit are lands, it's not actually, you know, qualifiably valuable. It's, it's just a lot of quantitative action in the action economy, but it's not productive economy. Um, it's not useful so, economy, right? Yeah. And so when you want to do threat assessment in a table that has a rule of law out to determine like, okay, well, what are the things that I'm worried about, right? You want to like see which players are actually being very productive with a rule of law out, and you want to really target on those players and hit those weak spots. Like um, I actually run, I also run all the rule of law effects in my Heliod deck, but I actually also run like something like sphere safety in my Heliod deck because I make enchantments. Uh, and this is to pretty much 
much like uh, deter decks like you know Godo or like Najila or like Derevi that try to use combat as a way to break that action economy, right? Suppression Field once again is like the card that I nerd over with because uh, <laughs> because once again activated abilities become the prime uh currency in this type of economy where you know your spells are capped like the more activated abilities you can activate you know typically the more productive you are though i just gave an example where you had a thrasios player who wasn't being productive because there was a back to basics but you get the idea right and so if you can begin to limit these like constraints you then begin to put your your opponent in a corner and if you can break parity within those restraints right then your opponent becomes more and more vulnerable and you just like literally a 2-1 enchantment cleric will just run them over in a way um but yeah right yeah, I, this is why i want to get back on one civvy just so many actions <laughs> under rule of law it, it, it's so and and that's an interesting you know uh, point because you know as we kind of move on to the next part of that Lincivi uses activated abilities a lot which we were talking about so you know that next kind of category of card is those cursed totem effects right uh couple right so cursed totem and you know to a, a lesser degree limvala are your 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 big uh, creature oriented activated ability uh stopping effects and um like we're like we're saying, you know, people who who are going way in on rule of law, or people who are going for um, maybe the the somewhat less powerful or you know less popular now kind of like evolution style decks that are very heavily uh, leaning into Thrasios or Kenrith. Uh, the, those are the decks that are that are very very strongly impacted by by these types of effects. So Cursed Totem is. Again, looking at the, the three dimensions, it, it hits the development of decks, generally green decks, because um, green decks are generally going to use mana dorks because mana dorks are, are, are good for a number of reasons. And um, mana dorks are, are just, you know, the, the, they're, they're, they're one of the, the biggest surfaces that are, that are disrupted by a Cursed Totem. Uh, a, a lot of value that is, that you know, Thrasios and Kenrith are, are both... I would qualify them as, as as win cons in the one sense if they've gone infinite, but but also as value engines in the the, the primary uh, sense. So, uh, but being able to shut them off from being able to do either from from incurring value or from being able to win the game uh, in and of themselves is, is a very powerful effect. And of course, Najila as well is also disrupted through through a cursed totem from being able to to, to win the game um, at at least in a uh, like a combo oriented way that they you know she can still win by degrees if, if left to her devices but um cursed totem was very strong in in previous iterations of the metagame but you you, you really don't see it as much anymore i don't know if anybody else uh, agrees with that in the flash meta it was great because everyone was doing breakfast combo so you, you needed activated abilities to win right away uh right. nowadays you know, I get really upset when I see a Cursed Totem or a Linvala because I know they're not that impactful overall, but they're very impactful to my Heliod deck or my Lincivi deck. Mm-hmm. Um, so they make me feel bad. But I, I do think they're they're a little less strong right now, unfortunately. Um, I, I cut Linvala from Heliod because I feel like there's too many times where it's a dead 4-mana card in hand, 
and you know it's not it's not dead dead it's a three four flyer but it's it's that's not the rate you want cdh so i've interestingly enough I, I I don't run Cursed Totem, but I do run Linvala because she's asymmetric. And yeah. um, for the stacks decks, I'll find that the the biggest challenge that I often have is other stacks decks. And like like Charles was saying, you know, when you're living what in a, in what a, a problem a, that must be right when when you're living in a rule of law <laughs> world, and the currency for breaking parity revolves around creature activations. If you can have an asymmetric means of eliminating somebody else's access to that currency, then that's your kind of direct route to victory. So, well, and especially in a deck like Fair Magic, where so much of your parity breaking is based off of your ability to activate abilities. Exactly. So, I I I, I think that Linvala is is worth it. Um, and I I I wouldn't you know if she was symmetric, I would not run her at all but um just having her <laughs> imagine why <laughs> just having her there uh to be able to break the I, I i'll call it a mirror you know really any stack stacks going against another stack stack is is you can almost look at them like mirror even if you're yeah. you know not running the same commanders or you've got somewhat different strategies at the end of the day you're you're, you're still probably going to be on rule of law and you're still going to be looking for ways to break parity with rule of law that are most likely going to have to do with activations. Yeah. Cobblepot and I had a game where we were both playing stack stacks and um, we'll we'll talk about this later with uh, table textures, but uh, if you're in a table with another stack stack, it it dramatically slows down the game a lot. (laughs) Right. Right. Yeah. So, you know, looking at other stuff, there's some stuff and I might just breeze through some of these uh, just so we can kind of stay on time. Uh, is, you know, we've got effects like Dranith Magistrate, and these are going to hit your commanders specifically, but not just your commanders. If you don't have them cast already, it's also going to hit stuff that's in the graveyard. You know, uh, I know in our show notes we were talking about, you know, a lot of the win cons of, you know, decks like Najila, Ukima, Godo, Gitrog, they, they all involve something that's from the command zone or from the graveyard or some iteration of that. And, uh, you know, Dranith Magistrate completely shuts down, um, you know, food chain combos. Mm-hmm. Isochron so, Scepter as well. Uh, the, Scepter. Uh, so it, it, it's stuff like that where Dranith has a lot of, um, of value there. Um, opposition agent and uh, even mind sensor uh, really hit tutors and you know can sometimes hit wing cons if they're timed correctly. Um, Torpor Orb and Hushbringer do stuff against you know Doxide. We, we, we touched on this earlier with how those are very effective against Doxide and Thassa's Oracle. And uh, there's there's just there's so many of these effects I could keep going through all of them, right? <laughs> I, I, I do um, want to say one thing about opposition agent and Aven Mind Sensor, just for the context of stacks. And uh, these are, I, I would say, they're, they're they're potent effects, just kind of in and of themselves. But um, a stacks deck makes much better use of opposition agent yeah. and Aven Mind Sensor because Absolutely. it relies on having board that its disruption is in the form of board presence so what'll happen is typically when an opponent 
has a problematic board, you, you know, some, something that's on the board that it needs to get rid of. Most of the time, they're not going to have their answer in hand. Most of the time, they're fine not having an answer in hand. They'll say, okay, I will go and find an answer to this when I need to. All I need is a tutor, and I'll be able to get back on track and be able to, to move my game along. As soon as you are able to couple a rule of law effect or you know something similar that totally disrupts someone's game plan, and then also be able to layer on top of that a tutor disruption, then not only are these people... In, in a situation where they're they're you know at disparity with what the stacks player is doing, but they can't go and find an answer to get out of it either. So right. it's a, it's an extremely powerful tool that you have available to you, uh, yeah. Because it 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 plays on on multiple layers. And tutor yeah, uh, tutors are the broken, go ahead, Michael. Tutors are the broken yeah. cards everyone's playing, right? Because like the whole format is full of tutors that were too cheap when they were printed, like demonic tutor at two mana is an insanely efficient card with an insanely powerful effect. So in my mind, when I play Avon Mind Sensor, it's because it, it does stop a really broken game-running play. If if the format only had Diabolic Tutor at 4 CMC, you know, I wouldn't care so much about Avon Mind Sensor. It, it's it's the Neoform, Evolution, Demonic mm-hmm. Tutor. Those are, those are the things that necessitate playing Mind Sensor because they really are just too efficient and they are broken game winning cards yeah neoform into a thassa's oracle is pretty devastating <laughs> right because uh, right. there's nothing that you could do until like without knowing that it's going to resolve into it uh it could be thassa's right. oracle it could just be dockside and you don't know right uh but uh, actually so, to 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 piggyback off of Kalpai, I'm just going to jump and talk about Spirit of the Labyrinth because I feel like uh, Opposition Agent, even Mind Sensor, are like, you know, sides of the same coin with like Hole Breacher, Spirit of the Labyrinth, Notion Thief, uh, Chains of Mephistopheles, and uh, Narset, right? That's all of them, right? <laughs> because there's a lot Uba of anti draw effects. Yeah, Uba Mask, right? Uh, right? So, like, a lot of these anti draw effects uh, as well. Like, uh, Basically, I think Wizards has recognized like the, the 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 two hallmark staples of Magic within the last 25 years has just been card draw and tutor, right? Um, and uh, I I don't think you know we need to really say anything more about these cards. They all have different kinds of wordings, and so it's really important to actually you know determine the salient details of them. But I don't know if like we we really like if this is the time and place to really talk about it i mean i'll give you an example uh for one like if you're uh because this came up recently with playing with power in a game that they had that i had to explain to them about how notion thief interacted with lab man uh since uh i think it was ryan (laughs) yeah ryan from playing with power was playing the game and uh i pointed out to them like because uh, he was trying to figure out how to get around Notion Thief with his lab man. I was like, Ryan, you have no cards left in your deck, right? Both Notion Thief and Labman are trying to replace the same instance of your card draw here, and you can just choose the lab man effect instead. Um, I had a I had a trick question with a level two or level three judge at a command fest event that I was with before that I that I gave them, and they uh, it's really funny to to watch them squirm under under this. <laughs> uh, so uh, and and I'll leave this as a bonus question for anyone listening to this. I won't give the answer. You can you know comment below wherever this is uh, uh, for your answer. But I have a uh, Mishra's workshop in play and uh my opponent has a damping sphere uh and i have a contamination out uh i tap mishra's workshop for mana 
what mana does it produce? Uh, and that's the question. All right, give me your answer. We'll see who's right. <laughs> um, <laughs> but yeah, these replacement effects are really important. These are not replace. Some of these are not replacement effects. That's the other key thing. Spirit of the Labyrinth is not a replacement effect, right? Uh, and that actually does matter for some things. Like if you drew your card for the turn, right, and you tried to like draw another card uh, and win off of the lab man effect, you won't be able to win off of the lab man effect because you already drew your card for the turn. Uh, whereas if your opponent has a notion thief out and you try to win with a lab man effect, you can win with a lab man effect. Uh, right. Yeah. I think the and, important point is that when you play stacks, you really need to know exactly how the cards you're playing work. Um, mm-hmm. it's, very it's, important. It's very important. It's well, really easy to mess it up on your own. Yes. And that 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 moves really, you know, nicely uh, kind of into kind of our next portion of this is, you know, when we're talking about when do we want to play our pieces? Um, and there's, you know, a couple different stages of the game where there's like the early stages of the game where you want to be attacking board development, wing cons, those sorts of things. Um, and, you know, Cobble, when we're really talking about this well and michael you know really honestly i'm kind of interested to hear your perspective as being a heliod player um is like in the early game what is the disruption you're looking for um you know what are you really looking for in the early stages as a as a stack stack cobble you want to go first well i i the 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 question i kind of wanted to pose to everybody um was in the early game how do you go about deciding whether you want to attack development versus do you want to attack win cons? And I know that, so we, what we're, what we're going to do here is we're going to kind of break this conversation in half along the lines of game stage and table texture and table texture will impact this greatly. Um, yeah, and I, I, I guess. So the, the, the way that I look at it is if I'm not expecting anybody to be, you know, a, a turn two or, you know, a turn one or two win, then I normally want to start by attacking development first. But if I am unsure as to whether an opponent is going to potentially win on turn one or two, turn one or two, then um, in, if, if I have a choice, if I have a selection of a couple pieces in hand or if I got a tutor in hand, I'm actually going to start looking at the you know using the attacking the the vector that someone's going to try to win through first and just not trying to to attack development at all and i i was interested in in getting people's opinions on the the way that they think about that yeah so i know for me oh you can tell uh, you you go ahead you go first (laughs) so i know for me when i'm playing lavinia it's very straightforward um is you are aggressively going for a turn one Lavinia uh, because your whole deck is built around her being an incredibly effective hate piece against what's popular in the metagame right now and really has always been popular. It's kind of what she's been good at. And um, so on that axis, it's always, you know, you want to attack those win con potentials in that deck and then kind of go from there. Um, But I know like in a deck like Golos prison, you're really looking to attack development because that deck is 
generally farther ahead on resources than everybody else is in the early game. So you can develop at a much faster pace than everybody else and continue to control the pace of the game. And so I know that's kind of how I, I look at it, depending on which deck I'm playing. Yeah, for, for me, I guess I'm constantly just doing a little bit of math and I'm saying, you know, how many game actions are other people away from winning the game and how many am I? And what, what can I do to make sure I'm closer to winning than they are? So often in the early game, depending on what your hand is, but often that means disrupting other people's development in an asymmet- in a somewhat asymmetric way. Because like playing Athalia will usually put people farther behind than it puts me. I'll be closer to winning than them. But if I know, for example, that they are a, an Oracle consult deck and I've seen them tutor once on turn one, well, now I know they're, they're probably pretty close to winning. They, they are either one or two game actions away from, from winning probably. So now I need to figure out how I stop that from happening. How do I put them to three game actions? Um, and then can I get them to four while putting myself down to three? So that's really how I, I try to decide what to do. And it, it's a little tough because, you know, sometimes as you start playing these effects, you may be putting some people behind more than others. And you really have to keep track of how everyone is developing and how everyone is planning to win. But I think it's really important to to keep track of how close you are to winning um, because it, it also depends. Sorry. Go up. Well, Sorry. I didn't well, mean to interrupt. What I was going to say is that I think that the kind of stacks that people think of poorly they think of you know the decks they don't want to play against or that of the people who come to their local game store and and make them miserable are the people who seem to only be thinking about how to put everyone else behind and never thinking about how they're going to win you know and 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 that's why i like heliod is that there's always a very clear path to victory and it's generally like two game actions away it's like play heliod play ballista or play tutor for ballista um and I remember, you know, growing up playing against this awful deck in my game store that uh, it was it was during the Rakanian Mass Saga, and someone was playing Blue White Control with Millstone. And nothing feels worse than someone that does nothing than stop you until they draw their Millstone, and then they Millstone you for twenty turns. You know, like nothing feels worse <laughs> than that. And I think when a lot of people think about stacks in this negative sense, it's because they're used to those decks that you know never really put into the calculation how close they are to winning. Um, I, I don't like playing that kind of stacks, and, that, and that's part of how I play the game. I, I just always want to make sure I'm keeping track of am I getting closer to winning or not, not just, you know, and putting one, myself further from losing. That, that I and think, one thing, uh, I just wanted to, to get this in here because this is just for, for if there's anybody who's not a super competitive listener, um, this that puts into context I think the biggest thing that a lot of uncompetitive people have uh, against uh, stacks, and, and a lot of people use Armageddon as the boogeyman, and they'll yeah. they'll 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 say you know Armageddon is this terrible card because it makes games miserable, and when when somebody says that, when someone says Armageddon is bad because it makes games miserable, they are they are relaying an experience of someone misplaying Armageddon. Mm-hmm. Okay. If somebody casts Armageddon and then like fumbles around for five turns trying to find a win, that's generally the wrong way to play Armageddon. <laughs> Armageddon is in any power level. Right. <laughs> the the 
that you know Armageddon is 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 a spell that you cast and then you then proceed to win very quickly because you have cast it in the context of allowing yourself to have a huge disparity of resource economy after that resolves. Um, if you just like cast it and then start everybody back at turn one, that's, that's like that, as you were saying, Michael, that's not like looking at your context within, you know, how close are you to a win versus everybody else? And then, you know, seizing on the moment to be able to create disparity and be able to win the game in the gap. And, um, that's something that's really important to understand because that is a fundamental tenant of playing stacks. Right. Well, and I think that's, it, it's very interesting because you talk about like Armageddon and what it does is especially in a deck like Lavinia where we are very heavily on a, on an Armageddon ravages of war game plan in that deck. And that's specifically because it takes advantage of Lavinia's second ability where, or first ability where, you know, you can only place casts non-creature spells with CMC greater than the number of lands that player controls. Um, so you, you restrict it based on that. And then you're over here being able to do whatever you want with your mana rocks, all those things. And you, it, it, it almost acts as a one-sided stony silence um, in some effects because everybody can play out all these mana rocks. Sure. But you know, if you don't have lands out, you can't do anything. Um, and it, it's, it's very interesting. And one thing I, I wanted to touch on too here, where you're talking about like in the early game, what is it you're looking for, for those like pregame actions and things that you were talking about, Cobble, um, is it where you're, and I, I was thinking about this a lot before we started the show today, um, is your seat at the table matters so much oh my God. to what your early interaction and your early stacks pieces are going to be. If I'm going first at the table, right, I will keep a lot more hands that have turn one taxing effects, right, than if I'm sitting fourth. Because I know in first, I'm setting everybody back two or three turns immediately. Right. I mean, uh, Callahan, you're giving me PTSD right now. <laughs> Uh, there, there's there's a recent playing with power video where I was uh, playing like a proof of concept a chroma deck, and Ryan was playing Godo Bandit Warlord, and he goes he 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 goes first, I go second, and he plays out uh, LED, and I think Mana Crypt and uh, or no LED and Mana Vault or something like that, and I go turn one Deafening Silence. I'm just thinking. Why did you have to go before me? This is so much worse now. <laughs> yeah. Why did you have to but, go before me? <laughs> and, the, and it's interesting because I know like with, with Golos Prison, I, I've had multiple instances where I can go turn one, Mishra's Workshop, play Mana Crypt, play Soul Ring, play God Pharaoh Statue or something along those lines. And like the difference between that, that effectiveness Beat going from like turn one or seat one to seat two is like astronomical how good that play is because mm -hmm. it's just like we like like I was saying is it's your decision on what type of disruption you're going to want to play in that early game is really going to be based around you know what seat you are at the table because that makes such a huge difference on what you're really able to do um 
and that's that's one of the things that I think is very interesting is when we're talking about when to like play out stacks of pieces, right? Um, and we're talking, you know, we're trying to think of where our opponents are at and, uh, you know, what are we trying to stop? You know, it really comes down to, you know, reading your opponents and what are the things that you are doing, you know, because there's a little bit of like homework you've got to do before you can go out and play a stacks deck. Cause you got to, got to know what's going on in the meta, right? It's the most Absolutely. important thing. It is. It is a hundred percent the most important thing. I, I would right. my my hardest beats are against decks where I don't exactly know what their win con is, and I'm really just trying to like limit the space of possible win cons because I don't know how they'll win, but I can be like, well, this is Tatiova. <laughs> like I remember the the when I played Tatiova at the DDM tournament, I didn't actually know exactly what the win con was, and I assumed I knew it had to use uh, Mystic Sanctuary. I knew. It was going to be looping it somehow, but in my head I was like, it's definitely going to be some infinite turn combo, um, which is not what it is, right? It was actually some ghostly flicker combo, and I thought that my like rest in peace was going to be good enough. I I, I can't remember. It was I had this idea. I was like, I think I have it handled, even though I don't exactly know how they're going to win. And then I did not have it handled, and and they and they won. Uh, and I think if I just like read the primer for that deck a couple of times, I I would have I would have known what to do. Or even uh, recently in the in the tournament I lost to Kinnon, uh, I just didn't realize the density of clones in the Kinnon deck in Kinnon Bounce House. Uh, so I played a Skyclave apparition to remove a Stacks piece. And then they copied my Skyclave version twice in the same turn and won. And I was like, oh, so that's how that deck works. Um, yep. <laughs> I mean, well, usually it's the first time, right? Uh, if you're if you're playing stacks, like this might be like the unfortunate thing about playing stacks in a tournament, if, especially if you're going to a blind meta and you're playing against rogue decks. Because I, I remember like uh, in the Oko-Toberfest, I think you played against a uh, Kalia deck, right? And no one's ever seen that deck before, right? Yeah, the Kalia Mad Farm deck that was like cheat in Razaketh or reanimate Razaketh, like right. mm-hmm. yeah, <laughs> yeah. And so and so you can't necessarily prepare for those things, um, but like if you play against the deck at least once, uh, I had the same issue with like Brayden uh, from CDH Cast's Corval deck. Like as soon as like you know, we play the first game. It's like, all right, well, this is how your deck works. This is how it would stop your deck. And Brandon was like, you know, you're absolutely right. Thank God we're not playing a second game. <laughs> um, <laughs> I mean, but like, uh, I, I think I think it just takes practice, makes perfect in a way. Uh, for me, uh, understanding game design, understanding how a card works, under like, and this goes back to like the Notion Thief, Spirit of Labyrinth, like understanding exactly how your cards function in a certain way. Not only for stack pieces but like my knowledge about lab maniac because i'm quote unquote the mono white guy how do i know how how lab maniac works against notion thief it's not like i play either of those cards but understanding how your opponents can win with those effects like and how those cards can interact towards a win even if your opponent doesn't see it you know you might see it and uh this might give you like implicit knowledge especially if you're playing against something that's rogue uh that not like the rogue creature type but like rogue as a novel um 
that you see a card in play and immediately and, and this is one of the things that I can do sometimes is that uh, combat is a really great way of, of handling this is that if you attack someone and you see what creatures they decide to block with uh, and that's real good yeah that way you can assess what is their valuable thing why did they not want to trade with this creature like why is this creature so important because I didn't think this creature is important but clearly they're not willing to chump block with it Right, uh, and so now I can reassess what I'm going to play. Uh, other things that I do um, is, in terms of reading opponents, especially if you're playing the same opponent and you like your meta. Uh, this is a conversation I have with Pongo offline, and he was talking about you know players who just do not make the most rational decisions. If you know a player has a repeat pattern of behavior, like they always feed the Mystic Remora regardless of whether or not it's a good idea or not, uh, you know you you can when you keep your opening hand, you might want to like think about like, okay, well, am I playing against a person who is likely to play like, you know, turn one or like turn two or something like that, Rhystic Study, Mystic Remora, like a Fetzen, and am I playing against someone who just does not respect those cards? Should I keep a hand with like Hole Breacher or like uh, Notion Thief or like Spirit or like Narset, right? Make sure I mulligan to those kinds of cards. Like, what do I do to tech against those patterns of behaviors from that player? If I'm playing in a table with, you know, other stacks players, like I, I think about the game that I had with Cobblepot, right? Uh, he had a rule of law out, and I was like, okay, well, he has the rule of law out. I just need to play the 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 Takatli Honor Guard, the, the Torpor Orbifet, and then we have both bases covered. Like he's stopping, you know, uh, like the like the farm decks from just gurgitating out like a bajillion mana rocks and i'm just stopping dockside extortionist and thoughts oracle right in this 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 is something too and i don't want to get too deep into this but this is this is you know when we're talking about stacks the stacks player at the table is not always your enemy um there's a there's there's a lot of times where you can leverage um opponent stacks to your advantage um, when you're not playing stacks and, and that's kind of its whole other thing, but you know, there's, there's these in, when you are playing stacks, like you were saying, uh, Charles is, you know, if you're sitting there and you're going, okay, well, we already got, you know, cobble pots already got a, a rule of law effect out. I don't need to put more mana into playing another one. I can sit on this one and then play a different effect. That's so he's already doing some of the work I already want to be doing. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and I, and I just think that's a very, you know, interesting uh, way to look at it. And very good point. Something to layer on top of that even is that even if, I mean, it's, it's, it's kind of straightforward and obvious that multiple stacks players at the table kind of have some mutual shared goals and they can, you know, kind of tag team to uh, sort of keep control of, of, of what's happening at the table and, and, and make kind of like, you know, raise the level of all the stacks boats in that way. Um, but even if you're not a stacks player, a lot of times, and, and I mean like most of the time, the, the stacks pieces that are in play probably should stay in play yes so what what i mean by this is let's say that god i have never four, agreed all four stacks said so hard <laughs> all god. four stacks players in this conversation are telling 
you know our audience do not destroy our stacks pieces no it and <laughs> i mean real, yes for sure it so, is very real though i wholeheartedly agree with you uh, but it's it's yeah. frustrating because when when you have like a rule of law out right and some nas player bounces it and then does a bunch of stuff but doesn't win the game and then the next player wins right i've never i, I always want to pull my hair out when that happens <laughs> yeah people right. can't if, make, if, oh, if you're going, going to win, for it i was like if if you're going to if you're going to remove the stacks piece and then proceed to win immediately after then yes it is correct to remove the stacks piece because that's the thing that's keeping you from winning but that stacks piece is also very mm-hmm. likely keeping someone else from winning too and right. if you are not going to proceed to immediately win, you are unnecessary. So, so think, think about it in terms of resources, okay? You want to win, but you can't win because there's a stacks piece in play. Now, what you can do is you can spend resources and a card, a removal, to eliminate that stacks piece from the board and then spend more resources more resources to go about uh, attempting to win and protecting your win alternatively somebody else is going to want to get rid of that stacks piece as well and they can spend resources to remove that stacks piece in which case you have more resources available to you to disrupt that person from trying to win or even more correctly, to disrupt that person from removing the stacks piece. Because it actually becomes incentivized for you to protect the stacks piece in play because right. it makes it more challenging for your opponents to win the game because well, they that's, have to commit that's more one of the resources things. to doing so. And that's one of the things I wish I, 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 if I could impart one piece of knowledge onto everybody, is if you see somebody at the table try to remove a stacks piece, you should probably not let them do that. Right. Not not on <laughs> a whim, of, at least. Right. Like, you should not go, hmm, they're removing this rule of law or they're here's a better example. They're removing this null rod and they have 17 artifacts and a jillion treasures. Yeah, well, it's stopping my top from working, so it's fine. Like, it, <laughs> I, I wish it was funny. I've but, had that happen, stuff I, like that happen. There, you can think of it. All, think I, of it like think of it like an infinite counter spell. Basically, yeah. if you don't have any counters right. in hand and you let somebody um, remove a, their you know, the, the stacks piece that's keeping them from winning, you know, if as long as that stacks piece is there, they can't win. And so it's like you don't need to have disruption. You don't need to have a counter spell to stop them from winning because that stacks piece is keeping them from winning forever until it's gone. Right. So you don't I, need to have the counter spell in hand. But it's a psych- it's a uh, psychology I, thing, I, right? I, people don't like not doing anything. And and I, I think people in general, I would love if players got more comfortable just not doing anything. Just saying, draw, play my land, pass the turn. And you know what? This is something that Spleenface does that I really appreciate when we play with him. <laughs> is if he doesn't have something to do on his turn, he'll draw and immediately just go, okay, I pass. And then it's it's immediate, it's fast. He doesn't sit there and him and haw over it. Yeah. He goes, All right, Drew, all right, I can't do anything, I'll pass the turn. And it's Yeah, we uh, that, we have a like a joke amongst ourselves about how 
it's so weird that when you reduce the number of spells a players can cast a turn to a single spell per turn, they uh, take longer. They take longer. <laughs> like it's so weird. It's like you can play like three spells and it takes a faster time for you to. And I and I joke to to Splingface that I think it's because uh, players are just bad chess players because uh, they don't <laughs> understand an, an action economy where they have the same amount as another player and they have to think about how to somehow profit from this. Because usually they use the cards to profit. They don't really use their decisions to profit. It's a psychological uh, thing. They're in in software, um, there there's statistics that show that smaller code reviews often take longer than large code reviews. Because oh, yes. when 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 there's only a couple of lines of code that have changed, everyone like focuses more mm-hmm. energy on trying to understand that little tiny bit of code that's changed. Whereas if someone's got like thousands of lines of code that's changed, nobody tries to understand it all. And so they gloss over it and it happens more quickly. It, it's a very similar psychological thing that's happening Cal- here. Cobble uh, stop, uh, stop calling me out. All right. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, uh, I, I think, um, there's one more thing that I want to piggyback on that. Um, uh, for people who are working on rule of laws, since rule of laws is sort of like the new hotness right now, uh, always play two rule of laws. Uh, yes. Don't, yeah. Yeah. Don't leave Amen. one in play because someone is going to try and remove it and be that idiot, and uh, you want the second one for reassurance so they don't follow up with it afterwards, right? Right. Uh, and removing two rule of laws. I mean. Short of having a takes it, two more turns. No, it takes a removing rift. one. Cyclonic rift yeah, is the yeah. only card. So God, I hate that card. <laughs> and, but again, I mean, it takes seven mana. Trust me, you're going to see it coming. You, right? Someone's going to need seven mana to get rid of. Yeah, two and it, it, it's funny in our in our gameplay video. I, I, I don't want to spoil anything. Mike Michael could tell you about a telegraph. Yeah, okay. I, uh, I was about to say, I hate having to yell to people about how there's going to be a psych rift. It's insane yeah. to have to tell people that a cyclonic rift is coming when someone yeah. passes the turn with seven plus mana up and you know they've recently the tutored and they have blue mana and they want to do stuff. It's insane, but somehow everyone's like, what a cyclonic rift? How'd that happen? Oh my God. Like even been, if it was a mystical tutor and you know that it's a cyclonic yeah. rift, people still like some are somehow per- surprised when it happens. I don't know. Uh, it makes me uh, so Michael, angry. I feel like you and I just come out of the womb knowing when a cyclonic <laughs> rift is coming, right? Well, I mean, but it's it well, it's one of those things though that you play enough stacks and you play enough in in honestly, you play enough CDH you start to be able to sniff them out because like 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 you said like people telegraph it pretty like if they're presenting eight mana and they've just tutored it's pretty well telegraphed that this is their that a cyclonic rift is incoming yeah right you can't all that is to say cyclonic rift is the main thing that is is kind of the trump to really any board state that you have accumulated by degrees and that's unfortunate but i'm but it it is fortunate that it's extremely telegraphed most of the time. Yeah. You can see it coming. You can't hide a seven mana spell. You just can't. <laughs> you can't even <laughs> cheat on the mana for that, right? Like that's a spell that you can't even yeah. cheat on the mana. You have to have yeah. seven mana. It's a it's a Nambo with knowledge pool. Uh, I've done it to someone where I I got into a board state and they're like I need to psych rift and they try to overload a psych rift. It's like nah, dude, it's it's now in your knowledge pool. Yeah, that's why I actually like the knowledge pool locks right now a lot. 
uh, mm-hmm. it they're actually quite hard to get out mm-hmm. of. And generally, the way you get out of a knowledge pool lock is by killing some, the person that has the knowledge pool. And right, you guys are speaking my and, language. And the best yeah. part about that <laughs> is just talking the person out of killing you when you have the knowledge pool, because there's no reason to kill the person with the knowledge pool first. So, like, if you're the Kenrith player yeah. against the knowledge pool lock, you should kill everyone else first. Don't kill the guy with the knowledge pool. Um, right. Or and um, another thing too, just while we're talking about Psych Rift and things like knowledge pool, so because Cyclonic Rift is like the the one trump that kind of will counter really any any stacks board state, it's very much in the stacks player's interest to understand about alternative casting costs and how people can't use two alternative casting costs at the same time. The, the overloaded version of Cyclonic Rift is an alternative casting cost. If they're trying to cast it through something else that's imposing an alternative casting cost, so for instance, knowledge Underworld pool, breach. Or, you know, Underworld Breach, those, those kinds mm-hmm. of things, those are already an alternative casting cost. So you cannot overload a Cyclonic Rift in those circumstances, and it's extremely important to understand that and to be able to inform people that they can't do that. Yeah, there there is. I think like the only instance where you're really able to cast a psych rift from your graveyard uh, overloaded is with Yogg's Will. I'm pretty sure. I I might be wrong on that, but I think that's because you can cast it as if it's from your hand. Yes, right. It's um, and so I'm pretty sure that's like mm-hmm. one of the very very few instances where right. You it's can. not a it's flashback really... cost and it's not an escape cost. So in that case, you yeah, can overload. Right. Yeah, because Yogswell is not giving an alternate cost to those cards, Correct. right? It's similar to like Crucible Overworld. And the other corner case is like you can, I believe you can cast Git Probe uh, uh, for, with like pay, by paying two life to pay for its escape cost because the cost is actually printed on uh, the actual yep. mana cost of the card. Uh, that's something that like some players might not know about because they think of it as an alternate casting cost. And this is like one of those things from like a game design perspective because they could have easily had uh printed git probe as you know may pay to life rather than pay this card's cost to cast it but because of the whole phyrexian mana implementation you can actually do that through underworld breach um well today i learned yeah yeah well I mean, card design you know, man it's really important <laughs> know your magic cards know how they work right know how your opponents are going to use them against you right <laughs> mic drop we're done <laughs> <laughs> It's so wild because so with like this, um, you know, discussion, I feel like we could just kind of keep going on and on and on. And I know, Michael, you got a you have a another engagement tight schedule. Yeah. So, you know, as we kind of wrap up here, you know, when you look at your your decks and. What are what are the the let, let me let me ask this. I'm going to pause pause this to everybody. I'm going to in one or two sentences. Um, what is the like knowledge you want to impart to somebody who's trying to pilot stacks? And Michael, I'll let you kind of kick this one off. I think that the the most important thing when you're playing stacks is when you design your deck. You have to start with how you want to win the game and then say, well, these are the stacks effects I cannot play because this is how I'm going to win the game. 
and then you can build That's your really deck. And then when you play the deck, you have to think about that too. Because you're going to have made concessions. You're going to play some cards that still hurt you a little bit. And you, you, when you start playing, you have to say, well, is it okay for me to play Thalia right now? Because my knowledge pool is going to cost seven mana. Or can I not afford to do that? Because I really want to cast the knowledge pool in two turns. So you really need to focus on how am I going to win? And what effect, what stacks effects interfere with that and which ones don't. And I think that that's something that players don't do often enough. I, I think that they, they think about, I want to build a stacks deck. They get together a bunch of stacks effects they think are good. And then they figure yeah. out how they're going to win the game. And, and I, I think yeah. that that is a recipe for disaster. You're going you're gonna to end up having a lot of long, miserable games. Um, so, <laughs> so leading with... And you're going to lose a lot of long, miserable and, and games, that's the other thing. You're, you're not necessarily going to win. Um, because you can lose with, with stack stacks. Surprise, surprise, you can lose with stack stacks. Um, and those games... It's easy to lose. <laughs> it's easy to lose. And, and the games generally go much longer. Like one of the problems at the Time Twisted Tournament... For, for Heliod was that it was a 75-minute round tournament and not 90. And I, t- I went to time in two of my rounds. So Same here. Yeah, yeah. it's it just you are going to have long games. Long games are awful when you lose. They're awful when you're never even really doing anything close to winning. Um, design, if you want to have fun, you want to play stacks, you want to win, start with your win con, build your base of stacks around that, then play the deck conscious of how you're going to win the game. Uh, and then I think not only will your games be more enjoyable, you'll win more often, but uh, you know you you won't feel like every game is a is this long, long, epic, no you know molasses battle. It, it, you you have a game plan. You're always thinking. You're always thinking about winning. It's it's just so much more enjoyable. Yeah, Mike uh, Charles, what would your kind of thing you want to pass uh, on be? Oddly enough, uh, like my Heliod deck does everything that you said that you shouldn't be doing <laughs> uh but like um I, I i and this is sort of like where my tag comes in is that if you are going to go in and, and play with a pile you should really understand how that pile interacts uh yes. i've seen a lot of games where like for example someone's just sitting around with a stony silence looking pretty and then someone else just drops a micah synthlatus right and everyone else just looks at the board and is like do you understand? Do yeah. Do you understand what you've just done? <laughs> and and then <laughs> you, you you you've damned us all, right? Um, what have you done? <laughs> but it, but ironically, the guy who drops the Mexithlatus has like I don't know uh, a really fat creature with a really powerful ability that no one can interact with anymore, and they just win the game, right? Uh, it's it, and they knew what they were doing. It's like I'm locking this board to this state now. Uh, and can I can I add something to yours? Yeah. With with that, um, and this is is if you're a stack deck that is commander centric, understand how your stacks effects interact with your commander, which kind of jumps off what Charles's point is. Oh um, yeah, don't run Thalia in like a Lavinia deck. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's dude, I I can't tell as, as as running the Lavinia server, I get a lot of messages from people where it will be like, "What do you think of my Lavinia deck?" And the first thing I see every time is it's running Lodestone Golem, Thalia, all these taxing effects. Mm-hmm. And the first thing I say is I'm like, "Well, that's like that is a huge nombo. Cut all of them." And you know, it, it, it's just interesting how, 
you don't think about it at first because most people see it are just like, oh, I'll just take like Grand Arbiter and port it over to this and I'll just have a cheaper commander. And what ends up happening is you have a deck that doesn't function all of a sudden. Right. Um, but yeah, I wanted to throw that in there because I felt like it really yeah. so there, jumped off your point. Yeah, there, there's a lot of micromanaging. I mean, like... Uh, like the other the other stack stacks I've built align more to like Michael's philosophy. I've been trying to build stack stacks that have been easier to pilot for players, uh, because I find it that like uh, the examples I've just given throughout this whole entire podcast, like with Notion Thief or with like the Underworld Breach, like alternate cost things with like Git Probe and stuff. These are like nuances that like players might not pick up, right? They might not pick up that like for example, if I have a Thalia out and a Trinosphere, uh, my opponent only has to pay three mana for uh, their Demonic Tutor, right? Because Salia makes Demonic Tutor a cost three, and that already satisfies Trinosphere's requirement, right? They don't have to pay four. Uh, and these kinds of things that, like, uh, players just don't really pick up easily on, and uh, I think that that's sort of, like, the problem with, like, rule-setting cards, is because if you don't know how the rules work at a very, very, like... Uh, intimate level then you're going to get confused by how some of your stacks pieces run and if you play at a table and someone else just points out like that's not how that's supposed to interact you're just going to find yourself shooting yourself in the foot um and so uh take michael's advice about building stacks decks don't try to like build or pilot like my heliod decks for example but if you are going to go in that direction be prepared to just learn a lot about the game because you're probably going to screw this up a lot of times over. <laughs> uh, if you're playing, like, for example, um, like uh, Lavinia stacks, uh, the Lavinia Discord is really great for that. And uh, in general, a lot of stack decks by design are just designed to make it streamlined so it's easier for players to play the deck and not mess themselves up. Um, and uh, But if you're going for, like, you know, a breadth-first approach and just cover a huge sweeping set of things. Once again, just study the rules very carefully. Is what I'll say. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Cobble, what would uh, your kind of final thoughts be? The wisdom you want to impart to people? Um, two things. One that's a little bit longer, and one that's real short. So, um, just going back to reading opponents. When you're playing stacks, you need to know more about what your opponents are doing than when you're playing any other archetype when you're playing most archetypes it's important to know how people are are you know what their what their lists are going to do so that you can know you know when to interact when it's most profitable for you to disrupt them and you know those kinds of things and you know like what what your windows are going to look like playing stacks means that you're going to need to know before people are making their plays what it is that they're probably up to so you need to you need to learn to anticipate the lines that people are going to be on. So in order to prepare for that, if you're going to be doing stacks, if you're going to play stacks, go and read primers, learn how the really established decks play. If someone's playing against you and it doesn't look like a well-established meta deck, then look at the commander. Is the you know, is there a straightforward way like if Najila wasn't a meta deck? you'd still have an idea of how that deck is probably winning or, you know, right. get rog that, you know, use your intuition to understand how is it someone's going to use this commander to win. Um, if it's not apparent just from the commander, look at the color identity. Do they have blue and black? Guess what? They're on Oracle and consultation. 
Do they have, you know, black? Chances are they're going to be on on Adnaws. Is there red? They're probably going to play Dockside, maybe Underworld Breach as well. You know, use the information that you have available to make good choices to guess and anticipate what it is that they're going to do. And uh, the short piece is rule of law is I right now the best, um, I would say, type of stacks that you want to be playing um, mm-hmm. because of how powerful it is, but also because of how simple it is. When we were talking mm-hmm. bef- a little bit before, we, we were, you know, how do you decide about, you know, do you attack development or, you know, do you attack people's ability to win? And how, did, how do you choose uh, which things you want to do? Guess what? If you play rule of law, you're attacking both, okay? By playing rule mm-hmm. of law, you're keeping people from developing and you're keeping most people from being able to win. So it's very straightforward, it's simple, and it's effective. So that is the type of stacks that you want to be on if you're going to be playing stacks. Yeah, uh, I'll, let me piggyback on that. If you're also... Um build the deck correctly right you should not have a hard time playing through rule of law yourself personally uh but uh if for whatever reason you built the deck so that it requires a greater level of skill to play refer back to the whole things that we talked about with like action economy and things like that try to just understand sort of how the game is transformed differently uh and then the last thing, and Kyle Potts emphasis on the fact that it's good right now, um, the game is changing, uh, and we're seeing a change in the game itself. One of the things that we kind of covered earlier about card draw and tutor with opposition agent and hole breacher, uh, I want to mention about the fact that this has been creeping up in magic design for a while now. Like the blue cards that are coming out don't actually really reference draw a card anymore. Uh, they're more effective. Look at the top, however many cards, pick, you know, however many, put them into your hand. Uh, and I believe that this is an intentional thing that Magic Design is doing. Uh, they're also hinting about white card draw. They just talked, Gavin just released a video like yesterday about it. Uh, and uh, he mentioned that the word card draw might not even be part of, you know, the like the, the vernacular of how they describe card advantage. Uh, so as... So even though like these like anti-draw effects or anti-tutor effects seem strong today, there will be other forms of card advantage and card velocity that will be creeping their way into the meta. And as this escalation occurs, where you're playing these stack pieces, you know, to hate out like effects like demonic tutor or like um, I'm trying to think of like 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 brainstorm or something like that. Uh, very much easily, you could one day see a blue card get printed that says, you know, uh, look at the uh, top three cards of of your library. You can put any of those cards into your hand, then put two cards from your hand back on top of your library, right? Uh, and that completely circumvents everything about uh, Hole Breacher, I mean, for example. Ad Nas already does, right? right? Yeah. And Necropotence. <laughs> right. Yeah. And Necropotence. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, like, but I'm saying that that we're 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 in regards to like tutoring, for example, is like the aspect. Like Adnaz already does that as well, but uh, 
I'm pretty sure we're going to see more of those types of effects now coming forward. And we'll also probably see cards that interact against those effects. And then the other thing, I, and I realized we forgot to mention about this, the one thing that Stacks actually doesn't, like Stacks shuts down, shuts down a lot of things. We've talked about a lot of cards that shut down a lot of things. The one thing that Stacks that hasn't been worded onto a card is something that straight out Stacks is against triggered abilities in general. Right? You have a Torpor effect that says, you know, creatures entering the battlefield don't cause abilities to trigger. But there isn't something that just says if an ability would trigger, it doesn't. Right? Uh, and if you yes, please. are building Yeah, yeah if right. you are building Yeah, if you're building a stack stack, right? Because that's that's like the because of all the things that brings magic back to fair play, that has yet to exist. Right? Uh, like there are things that prevent players from activating abilities of creatures because that's not typically normal in a game of magic where you're just playing vanilla creatures like think about like the origins of alpha and beta where it's like just a sarah angel right uh like a like a really innocent keyword soup four four flying angel whatever right and it has no abilities on it it's the purest form of an own of an unadulterated magic card and then you like start introducing you know like intricate abilities attached to it and you know some colors will have these abilities more than others some colors can ramp some colors can draw some colors can tutor some colors can play lightning bolt or whatever and so you know stacking these things to return back to the neutral state there has yet to be a card that literally just says no triggered abilities for this game uh so keep that in mind when you build a stacks deck that that is probably like if you see a card that has a triggered ability that isn't just an etb of ability that might be something that you might want to hinge on uh when building a stacks deck because right now that is probably the hardest thing to stacks against um so yeah yeah for sure well um honestly it's been a pleasure getting to talk to you guys um you know michael is uh, part of our team and will be featured in more stuff. Uh, excuse me, my chair just dropped a peg out of nowhere <laughs> on me. That kind of surprised me. Charles is a teammate um, too, you know. Yes. <laughs> well, yeah. Um, <laughs> Apparently, I'm, I'm I'm Michael Levine. <laughs> yeah. I well, thought I said Charles. No, no you, you said, said Michael. Uh, Charles. It, it oh well. Don't worry, people. Time. People can. It happens. Seriously, like people are like. They, they they see mono white guy and they're like oh you're the heliod ballista player like and i was like no <laughs> you're like well I'm i not. am a heliod ballista player but do you even no, have I, a heliod ballista list i don't think you do i i did it wasn't great like i like uh like i built one with playing with power and this is really funny because when it first came out playing with power had like a whole group deck building session and they were trying to build it and i was like I don't think this is the correct way to build it. I think you need to think about this way. And then I, I gave them like the cards that they should be running. And it was really funny because all the cards that I listed ended up being the cards in your list. <laughs> oh, that's uh, good. Yeah. But <laughs> no, I mean like uh, I saw your list and was like, I don't want to, I don't want to reinvent. I don't want to reinvent the wheel. I'll just play something else. And I played my version of Heliod that I've been playing like before the, the, the new Heliod even appeared. And I've been sticking with that. Um, it makes me feel like a special snowflake, you know? Like a special snow planes. <laughs> yeah. Special snow-covered oh planes. Oh, my gosh. That, that's why I still play <laughs> well, Lin Civi, so I understand. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. Well, I, Char, like I said, uh, Charles is uh, part of our team, and he will. we will be featuring him more. Um, uh, it's just been weird. I know you've been moving and stuff like that, so... Yeah, I bought a house. Uh, getting you... Yeah. Yeah. Um, 
congratulations, my guy. <laughs> Thank you. Um, <laughs> Adult. Doing better than me. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, but, you know, and also, Michael, thank you so much for joining us. Um, Thanks for having you know, me. We, Yeah, absolutely. You are welcome anytime. Um, so with that, uh, that about wraps things up for us here today. Just a quick reminder that you can follow us on Twitter at Sculpty Boys, or you can find a direct link in our link tree in the description below if you don't want to try and figure out how to spell Sculpty Boys. Um, want to give an extra thanks to all of our patrons who help keep the lights on. If you too would like to become a patron, you can head on over to patreon.com slash the mind sculptors or check out the link in the description. And I do want to let you guys know that as far as a patron reward, I am working on trying to cut it up in a way that it is watchable. But um, back in November, when we first did our record, like first set of recording sessions, we did a game with me, Pongo, uh, spleen face and Charles and uh, Pongo was playing Derevi uh, spleen was playing Tygam I was playing L- Lavinia and uh, Charles was playing Heliod and it's like a three and a half hour game and I'm trying to upload it for patrons uh, but it's a m- incredibly large file so I'm trying to get it to a point where I can like upload it for patrons um, that was a long game sir that was a three and a half hour game. Yeah. Um, that game was so miserable. <laughs> it was, it was awful. Um, but I, I am working on getting that up and getting some other patron reward what? stuff up there. Uh, one thing to keep an eye on is if you are a patron, if you are the, uh, what's it? The strategist here, you can help us pick, uh, what we're going to do for our Brewer's Choice episodes and things like that. So there's there's a lot of things that go into that. Uh, but thank you again for joining us. And uh, from all of us here at the Mind Sculptors, I'm Callahan, and we'll see you next time.